0: To complement the text that Tim read earlier, let me turn your attention to John chapter 1. And we're going to read from verse 29 down through verse 34. John 1, 29 through verse 34. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bore records, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water the same said unto me upon whom thou shalt see the spirit descending and remaining on him the same as he who baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bore record that this is the Son of God. Last Sunday we looked into the ministry of John the Baptist. and We saw several things about it. First of all it was a preparatory ministry. John emphatically denies that he himself is the Messiah. But he declares that his ministry is to be that voice in the wilderness prophesied by Isaiah and Malachi who would come and prepare a people for the appearance of the Messiah. Secondly, his ministry was very transitory. In John 5, Jesus makes the statement, to the Jews, he says, John was a bright and shining light, and for a season you were willing to rejoice in that light. John's ministry was sort of like a shooting star that goes across the sky and lights everything up just for a brief instance, and then disappears very quickly. And So it was that John appeared upon the scene and was the source and focus of great excitement, and then just as quickly he disappeared, God providentially removing him to Herod's prison, and eventually he would be beheaded. John's own declaration was that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. And so he had a very temporary, temporary, transitory ministry. But it was an effectual ministry. I want you to notice right where we left off speaking this morning or, or quoting from the Word of God, in John 1, verse 35 and 36, notice that some of Jesus' earliest disciples were among those taken from among those who had at the first followed John the Baptist. In other words, they were disciples of John, and then once John identifies the Messiah, they become disciples of Jesus Christ. That was the nature of his ministry, to prepare this people for the appearance of the Messiah, and when the Messiah appears, for him to be removed into the background and his disciples to believe on Jesus But today we look at yet another element of John the Baptist's ministry. Look in verse 31 again. John says, "...and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come baptizing with water." Another aspect of the ministry of John the Baptist was to identify the Messiah. To point out to Israel who its Messiah was. Now, you say, well, why did they need that? I mean, you know, didn't they read about the angels appearing at his birth? Didn't they read about wise men coming from afar? Well, no, you and I read that. They didn't have that. You and I, you see, look at the ministry of John the Baptist from a little bit different perspective. We already know, by the time we read this, who the Messiah is. Because we've read and we've studied the account of his birth. But remember that this had taken place 30 years before these things of which we're reading. And furthermore, even though they might have been noised abroad at the time, the incidents, the things, the supernatural things that occurred at the birth of Jesus were not widely known. Now, you know, they would have been mouthed about, mouth to mouth, but that's about it. You would not, the whole nation would not have heard of angels singing to shepherds in the hillsides of Judea. The whole nation wouldn't have known about these three magi that came from afar to find this Christ child. And furthermore, that's 30 years ago. There's been absolutely nothing. No stir, as we say, as quiet as a mouse for 30 years until there is this rustling, there is this stirring out in the wilderness and this strange dude by the name of John makes his appearance. And remember that the last word of the Old Testament, God had promised that he would send them Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And now here's this guy. He looks like Elijah. He's hairy. He's a Nazarite from his birth. Got lots of hair. That was one of the things about John. He's dressed in, camel, you know, the skins, a girdle of leather around him. That's the description that we have of Elijah. He sounds like Elijah. He looks like Elijah. And furthermore, he's making noises like this one who was prophesied to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He declares that he is this voice in the wilderness of whom the prophets spoke. Now notice that the questions that the ministry of John the Baptist inspires. In John chapter 1 in verse 19, we see that, priests and levites come down to his baptism from jerusalem and they ask him who are you who are you they said are you elias or that's the greek form of elijah and he says no are you that prophet you might be asking well what do you mean that prophet what prophet well, that unnamed prophet that Moses spoke about way back there, he said, well, God's going to raise up from among your brethren a prophet like me, and as you've listened to me, you're going to listen to him. John says, nope. Are, are you the Messiah, they asked. Are you the Christ, there in verse 20? And he denies, no, I'm not the Christ. In other words, first of all, the first question is, who are you? And then that raises, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not that prophet that Moses spoke of, then what are you doing? Well, who do you think you are then to be down here in this river Jordan calling the nation to your baptism if you're not the Messiah you're not Elijah you're not one of the prophet you know this unnamed prophet of Moses then what are you doing Well he's getting a people ready for the Messiah And he declares that Jesus is already standing among them. Look at verse 26. John answers them saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He's out here somewhere. He's already in your midst. But you don't know who he is yet. He's not been pointed out yet. And as strange as it appears in verse 31, John declares that he doesn't know him yet. He doesn't know him. Now, you would say, well, that sure sounds very strange. After all, we read the account last week of how Mary and Elizabeth, John's mother, was cousins. How Mary, pregnant with the Christ child, had made that trip to Judea to visit her cousin. How the the babe, John, as in the womb of his mother, leapt at the very sound, at the very presence of the Messiah, even in his mother's womb. But I remind you that Elizabeth and Zacharias, John the Baptist family, lived down in Judea. Jesus grew up in Nazareth up in Galilee, quite a distance. Also, I remind you the last verse of John 1 or, or Matthew Luke 1 tells us that John was in the deserts until the time of his appearing to Israel. He lived a solitary life, the life of a recluse or a hermit out there in the desert until he appeared. So I think the the, it's very, very possible. We would not know this for absolutely sure, but it's very likely and very possible that the only encounter that John had ever had with Jesus was when both were in the wombs of their mothers that since that time, very likely their paths have never crossed again until this day. Now you say, well, how in the world are you going to recognize him? You ever tried to explain to somebody, you say, well, I can't tell you, but I'll know him when I see him. You know, I can't tell you, I can't explain it to you, I'll just know it when I see it. Remember, that's how John... When he was in his mother's womb recognized him then he knew the presence of this one whom he was to be the forerunner of. And now it occurs again because notice that even before John baptizes Jesus he recognizes who he is. When he sees Jesus coming to his baptism in verse 29 he immediately responds saying behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. There he is. He knew in advance who this was because, as we read in the account that Tim read, as they are standing, as it were, in the Jordan River, John is uh, sort of debating Jesus. I have need to be baptized by you, not you baptized by me. We've got this thing all backwards here. You're the one who's the great one. You're the one who is preferred before me. Why am I baptizing you? So you understand that even before the act of baptism, John has already instinctively recognized who the Messiah is. And yet, when he declares him to be God's Lamb, oh my, you think about that. The Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now that takes you back, doesn't it? It takes you back all the way to Cain and Abel. When as both offer an offering to the Lord, Abel offered that one, the firstling of the flock, a lamb. It takes you back to the days of Abraham when he took his son Isaac up on Mount Moriah. And Isaac's no fool. He looks around and he says, I see fire, I see wood. The only thing I see to offer here is me. Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. And he did literally that day, the ram, his horns caught in the thicket. I remind you that the commentator, perhaps Moses, that's giving us the account, the history of that, says, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. In other words, if you want to see God provide a lamb, you're going to see it, and you're going to see it on this mountain. And indeed, some 2,000 years later, on a spur of that mountain, God's Son, the true Lamb of God, is slain for sinners. Or oh, you see a lamb in the Passover observance. As they were leaving Egypt, the Passover lamb slain and its blood put up over the doorposts. You see lambs slain in the ceremonies of the law that surrounded the Mosaic administration. Do you understand what I'm saying? From day one, you've seen lambs. and Lambs in connection with sacrifice. Lambs in connection with paying and propitiating for sin. In other words... When you say, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, in the mind of a Jew, there's only one way a lamb can take away sin. And that's dying. That speaks volumes right there. And secondly, he, in verse 30, declares him to be this one who, though he comes after him, is actually preferred before him because he says he was before me. He may be making his appearance six months after me, born six months after me, But indeed, he is preferred before me because he was before me. Even though Jesus makes his appearance in human history six months after John, he is nevertheless the one whose goings forth have been from everlasting. Remember Micah's prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem. This one whose goings forth have been from everlasting. So you understand that John, as he speaks here, bears witness... That this is the one that I've been telling you about. That all of John's ministry has been brought to this point in time. Not just to prepare a people for the Messiah. But to identify him for the people. Do you hear me? Not just to prepare a people for the appearance of the Messiah. But to identify the Messiah to the people. That's the reason... For his baptism. Notice verse 31 again. I knew him not. But that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. One of the reasons I'm down here at the Jordan. Baptizing with water. Is so that he might be made manifest to Israel. And I'll know him when I see him. But you see it's not just that John bears witness of Jesus. So does God the Father. In John 1, verse 33, John relates that the same one who sent him to baptize with water told him that when you see the Holy Ghost come down and abide and descend and remain upon him, you'll know that's him. That's the one who will baptize with the Holy Ghost. This he relates. In fact, all four gospel accounts relate that at Jesus' baptism, The Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, descended upon Jesus Christ. Now, now what does that mean? What does that show? What's, What's the meaning captured in that? It's the fact that this is the anointed one. Do you know what it meant to anoint someone in the Old Testament age? It meant that you took the oil and you poured it over their head. Kings were anointed. Priests were anointed. Prophets were sometimes anointed. The idea is, is to, by symbolizing pouring oil over a man's head, this idea of anointing with power, with God's presence, this man's ministry. You're setting him apart in an official capacity. And notice that in this case, it is not merely oil, olive oil, that is being poured over his head. It is actually the Holy Spirit himself that comes down and descends and remains upon him. He is being anointed with the Spirit himself, empowered for the office, for the ministry that he is about to fulfill. Now, this brings up an interesting point, and I hope you grasp what I'm saying here. Jesus, in His earthly ministry, did what He did as a man. As a man endued with the power of the Spirit from on high. Now let me try to explain what I'm saying so that you won't go away from here excuse, uh, you know, confused, thinking that somehow I'm denying the, the, the Trinity or anything like that, or that God, Christ is the Son of God. But let me point out to you, it's very important that you understand that Jesus did what he did, not as some superman. You know, we have the idea he just went around zapping this and zapping that, you know, and just... Jesus performed tremendous miracles and signs and wonders, but my friend, He didn't do it exercising independently His own power of divinity. He did it as a man wholly and totally submitted to the will of His Father and dependent upon His Father's power, granted to Him through the bestowal of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? That he is living a life of utter faith and dependence upon God. And you say, well, wait a minute. Do you mean that he wasn't God? Oh, no. He was God himself in the second person of the Trinity. And as God, he would have all of the rights and privileges and perks of divinity. But my friend, that's what happened when he was incarnated in human form. He laid aside that glory. He laid aside as it were the independent exercise of his power. And he became as a man, holy and totally submitted to the will of his Father. Now, I, I hope that you don't go away saying, well, you know, that really tends to belittle Christ in my eyes. It really should do the opposite. It ought to cause you to just absolutely be astounded with wonder and with marvel that he would lay aside the perks, as Al, as Al says, the bennies of divinity, the benefits of divinity. You, you know, as a divine person, you don't ever get hungry. You don't ever hurt. You don't ever get uncomfortable. You don't ever have need. Is that not the nature of God itself? Do we not learn that one of the things about God is he doesn't need anything? That he is self-sufficient. He's not dependent on any other creature. He's self-existent. He needs nothing outside of himself for his own happiness and his own pleasure. My friend, when God created man, it wasn't because he's lonely. need needs somebody to talk to. God was infinitely happy in himself. He's self-existent needs nothing outside of himself to exist, quite unlike you and me. In a few seconds, you're going to need a uh, big old gulp of air. Talk about a big gulp. You're going to need one in a few seconds because you and I have been created utterly dependent on any number of things, including air and atmosphere, even atmospheric pressure, as I keep telling you ought to wake up every morning thanking the Lord for atmospheric pressure the weight of that column of air pressing down on you because if it wasn't there, your blood would boil away in your veins. You have an operating range. You know, you buy a piece of equipment these days and it has on the side of the box, here's the operating range, temperature range. You don't. It won't work when it gets colder than this. It won't work when it gets hotter than that. My friend, it could say the same thing about you. We could have come into this world with an operating range stamped on us. Gets any colder than this, gets any hotter than that, forget it. We have to have an environment that is tailor-made for us. We are such fragile creatures that something we can't even see without the aid of a microscope can put us in that box in the ground. Utterly dependent on things outside ourselves. Air, food, water, and go on and on and on. God needing nothing outside of Himself. Self-existent. And yet Jesus lays aside such perks and comes in this world and needs the nourishment found at his mother's breast. Needs a place to lay his head. Gets hot. Gets thirsty. Oh my, marvel at that. Marvel at his condescension to come into this world and submit himself totally and wholly to the will of his Father. So that he would do only those things that his Father showed him and gave him to do. And he would do them in an attitude of utter dependence upon his Father. Not just to show him what to do, but to empower him to do it. Living his life anointed By the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God and dependent upon his Father's provision for himself. Just like you and me. Do do you understand Jesus didn't come into this world to walk around three feet off the ground, you know? He had a little halo over his head and, you know, he never really... No, he came into this world and he felt the same hot sun you and I feel. He felt the same hunger pains that you and I feel. He got thirsty just like you and I get thirsty. Oh my, marvel, marvel at it, wonder at it, that God would lay aside His glory and take upon Himself the nature of man. Not to cease to be who He was. Not that He was no longer God. How can God quit being God? That's another, ad- that's another attribute of divinity that God doesn't quit being God. If you can quit being God, you weren't God in the first place. No, He didn't cease to be divine. But he became something new that he had not been. He became man. And as a man, he's subjected to all the trials and tribulations and testings of this life, just as you and I are. Well, we'll speak more about that, I'm sure, as we go on and look at the temptation of our Lord in the days to come. But let me just reiterate, he does not perform his ministry Dependent on himself and on his own independent power as person, what the second person of the Godhead. But he comes into this world utterly dependent upon his Father's supply. This anointing. Notice in John 3, interesting text here. John 3, verse 34. Here's John the Baptist speaking of Jesus. He says, For he whom God has sent... Speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. When we say that God gives the Spirit by measure to somebody, we mean that God takes, as you would ladies, take a measuring cup and you dip it down in the sack of flour and you take you out some and you give it to somebody. The point is that when it came to his own son, God didn't just give him a measure of the Spirit. He gave him an infinite supply of the Spirit. And that is to be the realm of Jesus' ministry. He is not just giving you a little bit of something. you got the whole thing when you have Him. In Him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He doesn't run out. And therefore, John says, this is the one who's going to come and not just baptize with water, but baptize in the Spirit. I remind you that baptism... The very word, baptismas, especially, that form of the word was a form used that when you spoke of dyeing cloth, you might have purple dye in a bowl. And you would take a piece of cloth and you would dip that cloth down in that purple dye. And so in a sense you could say that you're putting the cloth in the dye. But you could also say that the dye now is in the cloth. To immerse a piece of cloth in the dye was not only to immerse it, to dip it or dunk it in the dye, but it was to permeate the cloth with the dye. And I believe that when we think of this statement that Jesus would baptize in the Spirit, what he's saying is that the one who comes after me, I can dunk you in water and I can get you wet and I can go through this preliminary outward ceremony that that gets you ready for the appearance of the Messiah. But he's going to be able to do something I can't do. He can dunk you in the Spirit and he can permeate, permeate your life with the Spirit of God. You see, Do you see what, what's going on there? In other words, I can do something outwardly for you to get you ready for him, but he can do the inward thing. Well, let's leave that for a moment. May I point out a third thing, and it's not recorded here in John, at least not explicitly, although it's hinted at, but it is recorded in the other three synoptic Gospels, that not only is this visible descending of the Spirit of God upon Jesus Christ and it remaining on him. But there is a voice that speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Oh my. We hear that voice again a little later in the life of Jesus upon the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter, James, and John go up there with Jesus and suddenly in the middle of the night Elijah and Moses appear and Peter, you know, wants to make the, the tabernacle for Jesus and a tabernacle for Moses and a tabernacle for Elijah and just stay up there, you know. And when he says, I'm going to make you one and him one and him one, it's sort of like Peter is saying, well, we're, you know, we've got three notables with us and we're going to make three tabernacles for you to dwell in. And in the middle of all of that, the voice speaks, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. As great a man as Moses was, or as great a great man as Elijah was, they are nothing in comparison to this one. This is God's son. Hear ye him. Now, I have often wondered how the oneness Pentecostals explain this passage. The oneness Pentecostals, by the way. Or those that say there really not are no three persons of the Trinity. That's just the same person changing from the Father to the Son to the Spirit. But you just have one person. Well, how is it? Was Jesus a ventriloquist? Was he throwing his voice here? Do you not see all three persons of the Trinity come together here? The Spirit descending upon the Son and the Father speaking, giving testimony, This is my Son. Either Jesus was quite a ventriloquist or there is another person involved here. We could also ask questions like, who did Jesus pray to when he bow- or raised his head to the heavens and said, Father, was he just pretending there was somebody up there or was there a person to whom he actually directed his prayers? No, I think you can see very clearly the whole tenor of the New Testament account leads us to believe that there were these three distinct, Persons and yet one God, this mystery of the Trinity. Well, let me sort of wrap this up by pointing out that the importance of this identification. In in true Old Testament fashion, we see that John is bearing witness as to who Jesus is, but his witness is not to be taken by itself. In the mouth of two or more witnesses, a thing is to be established. In John the 5th chapter, and I realize we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves here, but I want you to just scan over this for a few moments. Jesus' claims. In John the 5th chapter, verse 17, Jesus says, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. In other words, my father and I, again, obviously two distinct persons here, we're both working together. Now notice in verse 18, they About ready to stone him. They want to kill him because he's made himself, they understand, equal with God his father. He is not claiming that God is his father in the same sense that we would call God our father. Not in an adoptive sense, but in a real sense. They understand it whether we do or not. And he goes on to say in verse 19 that I can do nothing of myself but what I see my Father doing. For whatever things he doeth, these doeth the Son in the same manner and likewise do. In other words, I'm working in harmony with my Father. I'm only doing those things my Father gives me to do. Look at the of my Father. And I do only those things my Father gives me to do. You see that? Well, what is it then that the Father's going to get you to do? Look at verse 21. For as the Father... Raises up the dead and quickens them. Even so the Son quickens whom he will. Now they would have admitted that God had the power to raise men from the dead. But Jesus is saying, So the Father has given me the power to raise from the dead whom I will. Go on, verse 22. For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment. Unto the Son. Now, they would have admitted there's going to be a judgment at the last day. But notice that Jesus is saying the Father's will is that I'm going to be the judge. I mean, when we say, here come the judge, what we're talking about is Jesus. He's going to judge men in that last day. Then verse 23, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And he that honors not the Son honors not the Father who hath sent him. Do do you understand? These are pretty tall claims. Jesus is saying that it's the Father's will that whatever you would give and render to God himself, you are to render it to me. Are you to love the Father? Then you must love the Son. Is that not true? Paul writes, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. Now you are to worship God the Father. Right? Isn't that one of the things? We, we came together today to do that, did we? I hope so. That we're here to worship God. If we're to render to the Son the same honor we render to the Father, does it not imply that whatever we would render to the Father like worship, adoration, Praise, thanksgiving, that we are to render exactly the same to the Son. Do you understand that this is blasphemy? If He's not the divine Son of God, it's blasphemy to worship anyone, anything who is not God. Do you remember that's what the devil tried to get our Lord to do fall down and worship me. And what Jesus say? Well, it's written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, in him only shalt thou serve. Why didn't those disciples say, now wait a minute, Jesus, we'll follow you as the Messiah, we'll follow you as a great king, as a great teacher, as a great leader, but hey, we're going to draw the line here, this right here. What do you mean we're to give you the same honor that we give to God himself? But that's what Jesus is claiming. I mean, I'm trying to get you sort of boxed in here. I'm trying to trap you here. If there's anybody thinking that Jesus is just another great philosopher, another great teacher, a Muhammad, a Buddha, a Gandhi, you know, any one of these personalities that have come down to us through human history, if you think that Jesus is simply among that Group, you've got to deal with this claim that God would have you honor me as you would honor God Himself. Do you believe in God? Trust in God? Jesus said, Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. Man, these are tall. Do you understand the tall claims? Now, talk's cheap. How do we know? I'm trying to point out to you that Jesus is either the biggest liar and deceiver. He has put across on the human race the greatest hoax that has ever been perpetrated. Or he's exactly who he declares himself to be. That's your choices. What are his witnesses that he is, who he declares himself to be? Well, number one, he says down here in verse 31 of John 5, if I bear witness of myself, the witness is not true. In other words, if I'm the only one who's saying these things, you're not going to believe me. If I'm the only one who can substantiate and bear record, bear witness to this, I mean, in the law, it's in the mouth of two or more witnesses. And if I'm the only witness... If it's just me saying these things about myself, then my witness is not valid. But I would have you notice Jesus is saying these things about himself. He is making these claims. And he's either greatly deceived himself or he's a great deceiver of men. Or he is exactly who he declares himself to be. Look as he goes on to bear, give these other witnesses. Verse 32, there is another. It's not just me that's saying these things. There's another that bears witness of me. And I know that his witness is true, which he witnesses me is, is true. Butchering that verse there. He sent unto John and he bore witness of the truth. It's not just I saying that I'm this person. John said, I'm this person. Do you understand why that would be important? John as a prophet and John speaking for the rest of the prophets, the whole prophetic ministry of the Old Testament has come up to John and John saying, "He's the one." There he is. John is it were speaking for all the other prophets. He's speaking for Isaiah, he's speaking for Jeremiah, he's speaking for Micah, Malachi, He's saying I'm at the end of that prophetic order and all of those guys were talking about somebody coming and I'm here to point him out to you. There he is. So in other words, if Jesus is not he, John got the wrong guy. You understand the importance of this? That if Jesus is not the Messiah, then you not only have to throw out his testimony, you've got to throw out John's. Because John said he was the Messiah. And John says, I'm just speaking for all the rest of them. Not only did I have it wrong, so did Isaiah, so did Jeremiah. Do, do you see the point? you got to throw out the whole Old Testament. Then he says in verse 36, But I have a greater witness than that of John. Here's yet another witness. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. He says, you've got to toss out what I do. That these works that the Father has given me. Notice again, I'm not just down here making, up, making this up as I go, flying by the seat of my pants. It's what the Father has given me to do, that I do. But oh my, you've got to deal with those works. You've got to look at the works of Jesus and you've got to let those works, as it were, speak to you and testify that this person is quite unlike anybody else who ever hit this planet. You say, well, he didn't do anything any different than any of the other guys that came along before him. Just a week or so ago in our Tuesday morning Bible class, we were in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus performs the miracle. You know, Peter and tells them to launch out in the deep and they catch all the fish. You know the story. We were talking about how that's quite not unlike what had happened in earlier times. Moses, you remember, in the plagues. They had a plague of locusts. Lice, frogs. I mean, there had been others before Jesus commanded critters, and critters obeyed. But but it is quite a difference, isn't it? I think, and here shows the difference between Jesus's ministry and, say, the plagues in Moses' day. Those were plagues. This was blessing. This is fish, fish, and who caught them? Fishermen caught fish. This is something good. Plague of lice isn't good. That's judgment. That's wrath. But a plague of fish (laughs) to Peter, that's no plague. I think I could already see the money sign start rolling in Peter's eyes up here as soon as he realized what was going on here. Hey, I can take this guy with me every time I go and do just fine. In the next little event, Jesus heals a man consumed with leprosy. There had been other cases of that. Don't you remember Elisha in healing of Naaman, the Syrian, of his leprosy? And yet there is a great difference that Jesus so immediately took, you know, old Naaman seven times washing in the Jordan River. Here Jesus instantly reaches forth his hand, and as he touches him, he says, I will that thou be cleansed of your leprosy. And instantly the man is cleansed. Notice the immediacy of it, the direct contact. Elisha wouldn't even come out of the house and talk to Naaman. And then there's that third incident in Luke 5 where Jesus, they bring the man through the roof, can't walk, laying down on the floor in front of him, and Jesus says, man, thy sins are forgiven thee. And man, do these guys hit the roof at that. Who do you think you are to forgive sin? Nobody has ever said that. Go back and search. Go back and look at a prophet. Oh, they might have healed a few lepers, but they never said that they had power to say to a man, Your sins are forgiven. Only God can do that. Who do you think you are? Well, he thinks he's God. And he says, just so you'll know, that the Son of Man does have power on earth to forgive sin. Man, get up and walk. Walk. And up he jumps. And those theologians went away from there saying, Man, have we seen strange things today? Shaking their heads, never seen anything like this. My friend, look at the works of Jesus. Never has anyone said the things. He said, never has anyone done the things that he's done. And my friend, put that kind of miracle working power in the hands of any other human being. Put it in your hands. Put it in my hand. What's the old thing, the old saying? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Put absolute power in the hands of any other man. Put it in my hand. And I wouldn't be uh, tempted to turn stones into bread. It'd be something a little more lucrative. I wouldn't be in the bread business. I'd be in the gold brick business. Wouldn't you put the ability to do what he did in the hands of any other man? And you'd see a proud man. You'd see an arrogant man. You'd see a man who chooses to use that power to subjugate others to His will, but put it in the hands of Jesus of Nazareth. And you'll see Him employ that power over and over for the benefits of others and never for Himself. You've got to deal with the witness of His works. And then verse 37, the Father Himself He's born witness. And then verse 39, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And there they which testify. Same word. Witness of me. You've got the whole Old Testament canon. There's all these predictions about the Messiah. When He comes, He's going to do this, He's going to do that. My friend, Jesus doesn't do that. He's not the Messiah. But time and time again, we see these prophecies. Some of them uttered a thousand, two thousand years before Jesus fulfilled in this man's life you see it's not just him saying i'm this person it's not even just john saying there he is but it's the whole testimony of these combined witnesses taken together saying there he is he came he came and john identified him But Jesus went to the waters of baptism to be identified with us. When John said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, you do do realize that before you sacrifice the Lamb, something else had to happen. The Old Testament worshiper, when he brought his Lamb to be sacrificed, the first thing he did was put his hand on the head of that lamb. Before the lamb is to be sacrificed, he must identify with the lamb. The idea is that you're saying by that act, this is standing in for me. Wasn't it, Al, you know these things in the the old, old days, old timer. You remember when you used to go in and substitute somebody at a basketball game? Am I all out to to lunch here? But didn't you actually have to go over and tag them and touch them? I mean, I know the rule has changed. Now you just tell the scorekeeper or the referee. But you used to have to go in. When you substituted somebody, you actually had to tag them, touch them on the back, to indicate that you're taking their place, sort of like a tag team. It's the same thing. In the case of the man laying his head upon, a hand upon the head of this animal, you're indicating this is taking my place. This is standing in for me. And here is Jesus going down into the waters of baptism, identifying with his people, identifying with you or me. He's telling us, who am I come to be the savior of? Who is my people? Those who will come and follow me in this act. Those who will identify themselves with me in this waters of baptism. Now, I'm not teaching baptismal regeneration or any such thing. But it's that Jesus is simply saying, I mean, who was getting baptized in those days? It wasn't the good folks. It's publicans and harlots and sinners. And Jesus is going down to the same waters those publicans and harlots and sinners had gone in to be baptized. He is assuming his obligation as the Savior of sinners and so my friend you must be identified with him you're going to have to say that's my savior there's a lot of reasons why you would not want to be identified with somebody sometimes people do such stupid things you don't even want to be seen with them you don't even be around them sometimes people do such wicked things that you avoid them at all costs no I'm not with him Y'all, y'all have gotten into some of those circumstances. Some of you wives probably at times would love not to have been identified with your husband after they do some things they do. Are you, you know, the police arrest somebody and they say, no, are you with him? Uh-uh, not me. I never saw the guy before in my life. You know, that's how we do. We, we, there's times that we just soon not, not be identified. My friend Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world and was not ashamed to be identified with the likes of you and me. Identified with sinners, he's not ashamed," says the scriptures, "to call us brethren." Imagine that—that he own up to knowing us. But he also says that uh, he that is ashamed of me and my words of him will I be ashamed before my Father and the holy angels? Oh, we think of the cost of being identified with Jesus. Oh, it's going to cost me my friends. They're going to make fun of me. It's going to cost me my independence. I wanted to do this. I wanted to do this in life. And who knows what Jesus will have me do. It may cost me my comforts. We've been studying Paul and the discomforts he went through in all his life in his ministry. And it might even cost you your life. I was telling the Sunday school class this morning, some of the old missionaries that went to India and Burma and some of those parts of the world, they shipped their stuff to the mission field in their coffins. Because they weren't coming home. It was a death sentence and they knew it. They were going to die for the cause of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. We think of the cost of being identified with Jesus. My friend, what did it cost Him to be identified with you and me? And yet He came into this world and He laid aside the perks of His divinity and embraced our nature to be made in every respect like us we were yet without sin. And He showed up this day First day at work, so to speak, because this is the beginning of his public ministry and his public obligation. He shows up to begin his work of paying for the sin of the likes of me and you. Oh, what's it going to cost me to be identified with Christ? Nothing in comparison to what it cost him to be identified with me. To say, he's one of mine. To own me. Before his father. Oh, think of what it cost him to say. He's one of mine. But he's not ashamed to call us brethren. Hmm. Let it sink in. Oh, the wonder. The wonder of it all. Well, I had a whole bunch of other stuff down here, but i got to quit. I know y'all are getting tired. The mind can only absorb what the body can endure. And I... After yesterday, I, I know a little bit more about that. Got a good reminder, but I hope that as uh, you sit here today, that you just contemplate on the wonder of it all. Oh my! Jesus never said to you and I, "Go go over yonder and do that." You notice that his call is always, "Come, follow me. Come, follow me." He never asked us to do anything he himself did not do or was not willing to do. So he would say to you and me, come be identified with me in the waters of baptism because I was willing to identify with you in those waters. Come, follow me. Therein lies the importance of baptism. You say, um, Brother Mark, you believe man's got to be baptized to be saved? If that's the bone of rebellion, if that's the bone of contention between you and your Lord Jesus Christ, you bet your bottom dollar you better be baptized. You understand? You understand? It's not so much the act as it is the unconditional surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Come, he says. Follow me. Let's pray. Help us, Father, today to lose ourselves in the wonder of it all. Of a Savior who would leave heaven's glory. Leave the adoration of angels to come into the world where He would be the object of men's scorn. To leave the beauty and the pristine environment of heaven to come into this sewer pit that we call the world. To leave the holy of holies To enter into this sinful, sinful world. Thank you for his willing to subordinate himself wholly to the will of his Father. That he might do for sinners what they could not do for themselves. And pay what they could not pay for themselves. Even though it cost him his life. Even though the price is that of his own blood. Father, may we never get over it. May it consume us. May it drive us and motivate us. May it cause us to yield our lives utterly to this one who loved us so. Lord, work in the hearts of those that are here today. Father, I know not the condition of my hearers. Cannot see inside the heart, but I dare say that among this number there are many many who are outside the kingdom, many who need to surrender to the rule of Jesus Christ, to bow and trust Him, to trust Him as the Savior of their soul, to wash them in His own blood and cleanse them, to trust Him as the director of their soul, to guide them and tell them what to do and what not to do, to rule them, to trust Him as the instructor of their soul, to teach them Lord, might you break through the resistance. May your spirit today come and lay siege, lay hold to the lives of those who still resisted this day. Father, there are those of us who know you, who own your, the name, the wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior. And yet, Father, we find ourselves so often like a Peter, who under the times of trial and testing are ashamed to identify ourselves with the cause of Jesus Christ. We crumble before the maids of this world when they say you must be one of His. Oh, Father, may we never be ashamed of Jesus. Forgive us. Forgive us when we have failed to identify ourselves with Him. For He never was ashamed to identify with us, cause us to be even more submitted to his name today as we leave this place, do business in our hearts, eradicate every idol, every false Christ that would rear itself up till there is none who rules but Jesus Christ. Help us in that endeavor. Thank you for this wondrous reminder He is and of the identifying marks on Him and the witnesses that are given to Him. May we be confirmed in our faith that He is indeed, as John said, the Son of God. In His name we pray. Amen.